This podcast is produced by EnergeticCity.ca, your only local and independent news in Northeast BC. To support local news and this podcast, go to EnergeticCity.ca slash join to find out more. This podcast was recorded on traditional Denizal land. Before the peace, I'm your hostess with the mostest, Jenna Moreland, <laughs> and I'm here with my co-host and producer of the podcast, Trey Lapashinsky. Uh, I was just about to say howdy, partners, <laughs> but you know it's really hard after you just said hostess with the mostest. <laughs> <I> just, <laughs> you know we're starting off with a silly goose time, um, but I, I'm super sto- stoked for this episode. I've been waiting patiently for the past couple weeks to talk about the Healing the Hoop conference that Jenna and I went to last month. We met so many inspirational and knowledgeable people, and we are so stoked for you guys to hear from them. Uh, The conference was a three-day event focusing on resiliency, personal growth, and healing communities, and there were several people we spoke to, including all the keynote speakers, uh, because we had so many interviews, and generally our episodes are only like an hour, hour and a half long. We decided to release this in two parts. So one in June, which is the one you're listening to right now, and one next month. Yes. So today you'll be hearing from Art Napoleon, a former chief of Soto First Nation and the co-host of the popular cooking show Moose Meat and Marmalade, which is such a fun show. You guys should go and check it out. Even go to YouTube. There's clips. It's so fun. Yes. Yes. We also chatted with Penny Jones, a team leader specializing in mental wellness and substance use at Northern Health based in Prince George. And Jocelyn Isert, a Healing the Hoop organizer and CEO of Busy Body Enterprises. Most of the guests talk about their upbringing. And actually, Penny had her mom join us, <laughs> who was a huge influence on Penny's life and her journey. And they go everywhere together. And you'll hear from her as well. She's a wonderful lady. And it was just, uh, it was great just meeting her. Just, you can tell. Yeah, she has a presence. Yeah, she had a presence where you know she's experienced life. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talk about the importance of healing through Indigenous ways and the general importance of, of healing. Yeah, and on the last day of the conference, I participated in a blanket ceremony. It was very emotional and I was honored to be given that opportunity. Um, even though I am Indigenous, I'm still on a journey of figuring out exactly what that means to me. And this ceremony not only gave me perspective, I felt grounded and supported in a way I don't think I've ever felt before. It was a really cool experience, the overall conference and the blanket ceremony. I got to be involved in it because, you know, you and I were hanging around the the whole three days meeting with guests, meeting people, networking. And uh, it was cool that I actually was brought up mm-hmm. while you were doing the blanket ceremony. It was done in asked, front of the entire conference. Yeah, yeah. And then I was asked to, like, put my hand on your back. And so was Jocelyn and I believe Christy as well. Mm-hmm. And then you were walked around. around the whole conference. And it was... Yeah. And I remember looking out at the lady who was sitting next to us at our table I think her name is Agnes. And I remember I was looking at her for a lot of it. And I actually found out later that um, Christy told me that that like she was kind of grounding me. So I would love to reach out to her and speak with her. So Agnes, if you hear this, please reach out to us. I, I don't have your contact information, but I'm, I'm looking for it. <laughs> or if anyone saw us at the conference and saw what table we were sitting at, 
If you know one of the two females that were there, please let us know. Because they were talking a lot, but they, the conversations we had with them, especially this Agnes, like, yeah. I, I want to talk with her. Mm-hmm. I want to I sit down and have a coffee with her. Uh, but that was just a small piece of the event. And like I said, we're doing this in two parts. Even for myself, I, um, I had the opportunity to... Um, go into like a, a men's fire circle, I believe mm-hmm. is what it was called. And it was led by David Daniels, who will be on the next episode um, for Healing the Hoop in, in part two. And during this time, he was he was talking about the healing process. He was talking about um, the place in society for men and women and how they can work together. And he was also doing some, some healing exercises. And I don't want to get into too much of it because I don't know if I'm allowed to, but there's one instance I just, I can't get out of my head. He was going around. He asked if anyone had back problems, right? Like just any sore backs. And he would do his practices and ask them if they felt better. And most of the time, you know, they were like, oh yeah, it does feel a little better. It, it was just weird to me. It was, it was different, right? This is what he was doing. He was whacking eagle feathers on their back. And he, he was looking at pressure points. I don't know the technical side of what he was doing, but there was one case. There was a gentleman there who came in in a wheelchair um, and he, he obviously put up his hand when he said, asked if he had back problems. And when he, uh, when David went over to him, uh, he, he did his practice. He was, um, shouting to the creator, I believe. And then he got the individual to stand up and then he asked him if he had, he had stood before since his injury. And the individual said, no, nah, usually I can't stand straight up I have to have my leg behind me well he was standing fully up after David was doing what he was doing it was it was crazy to witness and I'm not gonna lie to you I was crying a little bit because after David you know once he was standing up David did some more stuff he was doing his thing Um, and then he asked uh and then he said thank you to to the man and the man looked at David and said no thank you with so much emotion that I almost needed a tissue box. It was absolutely crazy. It was just an overall crazy experience. And didn't they, wonderful. didn't he mention about men in like the heart fires, mm-hmm. which I think is like, I don't know. Men are always kind of not always, but more prone to not talk about emotions and stuff yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I don't know. I wasn't there, but it sounds like it was a, good opportunity to kind of express that and it was a good experience like you know i was tearing up and i looked around and you can feel it from everyone else like they were taking in that moment too when david was talking with this man and it was definitely like it seemed like i was the only one tearing up but everyone was in it and 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 i felt comfortable that's the biggest thing i've never met these people before and i felt super 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 comfortable and it didn't matter if I was crying, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think the support and mm-hmm. having, like, the group and everybody wanting to be there, yeah. I I want to hang out with David all the time. And then a couple, the, I think it was on the last day, I remember he he worked his magic on your leg. Yeah. And then he went on my back. <laughs> and I have had back pain since I was 17 years old. I am six foot nine. That is a huge jump that was made when I was younger and a growth spurt. And I've just had tremendous back pain that, you know, I've done physio, I've done acupuncture, I've done all these things and I still live with it every day. 
and I was just blown away. Uh, you know, I, I would say five years ago, Trey would be laughing at this moment because I'm, I was such a skeptic. Yeah. But I don't know what he did, and I just looked at him. I thanked him. I wanted to hug him. <laughs> and I, I felt good. Like, my back felt great. Remember, it was like four days my back was good after yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And now I need to see David again. I need to call him in if you're listening to this, David. <laughs> Fly see, down my leg my is back. still good. Like, oh, So I had nerve, uh, like, I think nerve damage from when my daughter was first born. And... Um, it's been 10 years and David actually, I mentioned it just in kind of passing that my leg was kind of numb. And then the next morning he just like, when I was walking by, he just like grabbed me and was like, did you have an epidural when your daughter was born? And I was like, yes. And he's like, okay, I saw the needle going into your back. I know how to fix it. You come with me. And then he fixed me. <laughs> It's just like, it's so wild. And then I got to watch that too. I was like, what is happening? Like, And then like with my back after he looked at me, do you feel better? And I'm like, David, what did you do to me? <laughs> like, yes, I feel great. I, I haven't been able to stand up straight for years without some sort of pain. Yeah, it's it was pretty powerful. Absolutely crazy. But we'll rant and talk about some more stories. We have a lot. This was just a small sliver of what we experienced Make sure you listen to the second episode. But before we get in to the interviews, I think we have some uh, people to thank. Yes. Today. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of Troyer Ventures. Troyer has been serving our community and the energy industry with tank and back trucks since 2000. They're built on the principles of hard work, service, and community, and they are proud to offer the financial support to make this pro- program possible. Also, shout out to our new sponsor, Epscan Industries. They are a full-service provider who brings a comprehensive management system and experienced personnel with highly targeted skill sets. We'd also like to say thank you to Click for their support. The Cultural Learning and Innovation Circle is a not-for-profit society that offers mentorship, coaching, and training opportunities. And now for the first of our three guests for this episode, here's Art Napoleon. You were raised mostly by your grandmother, right? Yep, and a little bit of my grandfather. Okay. And, you know, in the extended family, the uncles and aunts chip in too. Okay. And uh, was there any English in the household? There was. All my, uh, well, I call my aunts and uncles brothers and sisters. I was adopted by my grandparents the traditional way. Okay. Like they call it band custom. So there was no papers, no nothing. I was registered as their child. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit about growing up? And they did speak English, not the grandparents, but uh, the aunts and uncles all went to high school. They went on, some of them went on to college. So they were teaching me to speak English by the time I reached grade one. Okay. But you were fluent in Cree? Yes. That was my first language. And how many languages do you have now? Just the two. Two. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But I can pick up. Bits and pieces really fast. Yeah. Okay. And you moved to Victoria when you were 17. That's right. Right. So what was it like going from a very small community to the big city? It was a whole different world. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> I was walking around looking at buildings, you know, with bright eyes. Yeah. And so can you tell us a little bit about what you did in Victoria, like your, your time there? Well, I was in high school and I had a... A roommate who was also in high school, 
So we were the only kids who were free of parents. And that was Mike, who you met yeah. here, like at... Uh, in Chetwind, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you guys moved there together. We moved there together. Uh, we were trying to get jobs on fishing boats, and I didn't know that these people have their crews, regular crews, so we were going from uh, wharf to wharf in Tofino, Yuklulit, trying to get on. Didn't get on, but I did get on as a short-order cook at the McQuinna Hotel in Tofino. Okay, so I guess we should back up a little bit and talk about cooking when you were younger. So when did it? When did you first start to get inspired by cooking? Well, you know, we were kind of poor growing up, so if you wanted something creative, you had to learn to make it yourself. And I'd look around, and the cupboards didn't have that many creative things, so I'd go to the garden. Or I'd look, I'd go picking berries, and I'd make a berry pie, or I would make a rhubarb pie. And I had never, as a kid, I had never done these. Like we're talking, like probably seven or eight years old. And then there was another kind of cooking which my grandma did around the at the smokehouse, where they uh, are making dry meat. So a lot, a lot of the meals are cooked out there. So they're done really rustic style, marrow bones over an open fire. Uh, moose meat staked out on willow stakes and driven into the ground around the fire. So I had to help to take care of that, making fire, checking on the meat, turning it around, turning it around, make sure it's cooked evenly, knowing what kind of uh, wood to use. So there was that style, which I would call very traditional, ancient, in fact. And then there was the uh, poor res kitchen style, so... And I didn't know about any fancy things. I didn't know what a pizza was. When I was a little kid, I saw a commercial. There was pizza. We had black and white TV, one channel, Dawson Creek, CJDC. <laughs> and I'd just guess what was on, the, <laughs> what was on a pizza. <laughs> and the shredded mozzarella, I thought, was noodles. So oh, I, my goodness. Yeah, I put that on my first pizza. And how, and how did that taste? <laughs> Not very good. <laughs> So you experimented then, just yeah, to kind of see what worked. I experimented. Then grade eight, I took home ec. So I started learning how to set a table properly, how to, you know, more about the, the scientific side of cooking. And so, yeah, I just continued throughout high school to take home ec. Okay. And then I got on as a camp cook uh, during firefighting for forestries, for Ministry of Forests, yep. I mean. We'd... Mm -hmm. uh, one old man couldn't uh, make it, so they hired the kid, and they ate well. And so they kept me. <laughs> they didn't fire me. And I didn't have to go out and, uh, with a shovel and the, what they call a pecan, putting out little spot fires so, uh, for, you know, 14, 15 hours. So it was better that I was a cook. Okay. And when did music kind of start to come into your life or was it always there? Well, I grew up in a musical family. I had uh, my uncle Frank who played fiddle and his sons who all courted and I had a brother buddy who played. Everybody played a little bit of something. And then we had the drums and the amplifier set up even though we had no running water. We did have electricity starting when I was four. And so all the equipment would be set up. And so, yeah, we would jam at any time. So this is how I, I, was, I grew up around, like, kitchen parties and then uh, jamming around with amplifiers. And it was Soto First Nation, right? Yes. Okay. And you grew up there, spent first 17 years? That's right. Okay. 
And so just as your music career was starting to take off, you got a call from the elders uh, asking you to come back and be chief. This was many years later. Many this, we're years talking later. like 93. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So was leaving the music to come home difficult or did your sense of duty to your community outweigh your it, personal That's exactly needs? what happened. Yeah. My sense of duty outweighed like, um, and uh, the music was, I was just starting to get a lot of attention, especially in Calgary and touring all over, uh, playing all over Alberta, different conferences and, and festivals and even street gigs. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, and certain clubs like the Kensington Deli, which which has produced a lot of famous musicians, K.D. Lang and all these big names, all kind of played there at the Kensington Deli at one time in their lives. So I got to play there too. And so, yeah, it was the sense of duty coming home to be of service, and it's hard to turn down a request from the elders. So I didn't have to run. There was no voting. The elders put me in. So did you feel like kind of you were being called home in a exactly. way? Yeah. Okay. And so in being chief for 10 years, right? No, not nope. 10 years. It wasn't very long at oh, all. Oh, it wasn't? Oh, no. I thought you were chief for 10 years. No. Okay. So how long were you but chief But I for? was on council off and on. Usually oh, okay. when somebody was either resigning or their term was up and there'd be like um, a by-election, I'd come and fill in just to be of service. Okay. I didn't want to make a career out of it. I just, I knew that I could help. So you, yeah, okay. So you're just trying to be helpful yeah. and filling in when you needed to. Exactly. What is your proudest moment of working either on the council or as chief? Um, probably the environment, standing up for the environment and standing up to the people who really were in charge, different corporations and governments, uh, because I don't think, a whole lot of chiefs have done that since. So standing up, I think it, to me, it represented a try to at least attempting to come from a place of integrity and truth. So, um, kind of having your voice heard, having our voices heard, having our concern, bringing people to the table and make sure they don't just railroad things and having a, a say on mitigation and setting maybe higher environmental standards. Well, I just wanted to go back a little bit, Art. Um, talking with you and you and your friend Mike going to Victoria, was that just you guys? You, you wanted to leave the area. You wanted to see something new. Kind of what was your guys? I was. For I had a since a young age. I had a burning desire and curiosity to know what's out there in the world and to experience life. I pictured myself as an adventurer. Always imagine that adventure, adventure, adventure travel blah 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 maybe even showbiz because i was already doing all kinds of party tricks when i was a kid and <laughs> impersonations putting on shows for other kids and <laughs> charging them a dime to get in <laughs> so you, already had, you always had a big personality then. <laughs> well only if only if the mic was shoved at me <laughs> i was shy otherwise Your time to shine yeah oh, okay. exactly as soon as the mic was handed over i took over and then so you know, so i started like emceeing weddings and stuff like that and so that's where a lot of comedy came in because comedy i think relaxes people mm-hmm. let they can let their guards down once they have a few laughs mm-hmm. and they know how you're just as much of a dick as they are. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's what I was going to bring up. Like you, you wear so many hats. Like if you're talking about being an entertainer, like it's different 
you know, some people just do music or they just are on TV and you kind of, you do all these different things. And it's funny, like I'm, I'm a huge stand-up comedian fan and I, I just watching clips of the show definitely you could tell you you have those those chops too so basically in your head you know during this time even before victoria growing up you just wanted to be an entertainer in some facet right yeah i didn't really it wasn't formal in my thinking it mm-hmm. wasn't formalized i just knew that I, it's something i like to do i never once thought i might be able to make a living at this uh and the music i didn't get serious about it until i was 19 and went to music school and it just my music kept improving. I knew that it, I didn't want to be just a player. I wanted to write songs about issues. So I started writing songs. And anybody that I met that was already making it, uh, getting radio play, the advice I always got from them, write about what you know. Don't write about back dirt roads in Montana. Don't write about <laughs> Nashville. <laughs> write about what's around you and what you're what you can speak with some authority on so that's what i started to do you you know your time growing up uh here in the piece and then your time in victoria how did that help your your your, your writing for music pretty much shaped everything okay. that i yeah. did it, mm-hmm. a, a lot of the songs I, ro- I wrote were about the land and the connection to the land, the connection to community, the connection to elders, and just hearing some of their stories and then tur- turning it into a song. That's how it started. And then, uh, you know, you add stuff as you move about traveling. You meet different characters and you just keep building on the different stories. So fascinating. And you went to music school in Nelson? Yeah. Did you like Nelson? Uh, it's pretty. <laughs> it's, it's, it's beautiful there. <laughs> I think I took a toboggan from my house down the hill to the school. <laughs> yeah, it's very small. <laughs> <laughs> it's very steep. Yes, that too, yes. Uh, okay, so you met Dan. Um, he was working, you were working on a show. He was catering yeah, for that I show, right? I was working right? on a kid's show called Tiga Talk for APTN. Uh all of us. The show had been in existence for a couple of years, and then they recruited me to play dad. I wasn't an actor, and then uh, I don't know. The dad suddenly appears in season three, and I kept telling everyone on set, "The dad just got out of jail." <laughs> <laughs> That's where he comes from. <laughs> and Dan was the caterer, and I had this concept for a, a, a spoof. Uh, I guess the early roots of Moose Meat and Marmalade, it was just one host who was a bushman, trapline guy, really rough and dirty, didn't measure anything. And it was making fun of all the, there were so many food shows coming out and they were all like about perfection and pulling out the tweezers for plating. And I wanted to do the opposite. And we showed a producer who's now my partner in the business. And she uh, liked the idea, but she wanted to open it up to a wider audience so she said how about a white co-host how about dan he's from england apparently he loves shooting and he loves the outdoors and he's a chef why don't you guys uh get together so i went and introduced myself we kind of hit it off and then they did a, a little a test chemistry test with yeah. the camera and we were already at each other's throats. You guys have such good chemistry. It's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> it's so funny. It's like you know exactly how to push his buttons, and I just love it. I want to know. So fun. Outside of the show, are you guys friends? Like, do you talk regularly when, outside of the show? Yeah, when we can. When we can, 
Uh, we'll sometimes head out to the woods to go hunt grouse or deer or something, whatever's in season. He gets he has a permit for helping with crop protection, so sometimes I'll accompany him, and we just get a chance to be out in nature together. So, yes, he's a busy man, I'm a busy man, but we make time two or three times a year to go do something That's together. Awesome. And it's not this... We're, our, what, what you'll see... Uh, between us and real life is not quite what you see on TV. <laughs> it's much worse. <laughs> <laughs> so Dan is a classically trained British cook, and you're kind of more of the traditional kind of bush cook. Yeah, I didn't take any Red Seal, right? I, I basically told you about my training. Yeah. It was my aunts and granny and the bush cooks on the, uh, on the fires who taught me how to cook. Yeah, so that, like, you guys are both very different and obviously willing to learn from one another. Was that kind of the lesson you wanted from the viewers, just to kind of see two people learning from each other and, and understanding different uh, cultures? Originally, it was supposed to be about, yeah, learning from each other's cultures through food, but it's kind of morphed to, uh, into a little more than that because we always tackle things like food sovereignty. We let the community sometimes tell their own story and we don't avoid the issues that they want to talk about because we are a doc series we can't be scripted so when we go we have a kind of an outline of who we're going to interview we've talked to them ahead of time the kind of topics we want to hit and then the rest is free flow none of that is scripted okay okay and so what is the kind of reception from the viewers and are they kind of taking away what you wanted from it? Because it does feel like I'm learning without feeling like I'm learning. That's the whole idea is okay. to, you know, uh, people can see us teasing one another. And I think it lets them uh, feel more comfortable. And then we throw in teachings or somebody on the show does. And we talk about certain issues, I think, in a way that... If, if there wasn't humor and there wasn't our relationship, people might have a hard time talking about it. So I think it opens the door for um, reconciliation and knowing that these kinds of relationships are possible mm-hmm. and that they're not new. They've been going on for a while, maybe not with a Brit, but non-Native Canadians and Aboriginals or Indigenous people have a long had uh, relationships no matter what territory you're in. There's going to be people with relationships and even intermarriages have been going on for quite a while. So it's the first time it's happened between an Indigenous chef and a British chef, I guess. <laughs> and it seems like even though, like, Dan is obviously learning a lot about Indigenous culture, but it seems like you are too. Like, there's, I mean, you know a lot, but even, like, the episode that I watched that you hadn't really even cook seal before exactly because native cultures are very diverse Mm -hmm. right across the country so when we go to somewhere like nunavut uh, i'm just as much a seal out of water as he is so uh (laughs) yeah there's a lot to learn so what do you think is your most memorable moment from the show? Oh, my God. <laughs> I know that's hard to do, and I even watched, like, the circling back. You know back. what? <laughs> We've been all, I live, um, you know, when you add, when I add my um, music and my conference speaking and keynotes to the travel we do on Moose Meat and Marmalade, my life is, feels like almost half time on the road. It's probably more like a third, but it feels like a half. And... 
because we're now filming season seven, some things just roll into the next. I don't sometimes remember where we were, where are we going next month? Um, it it kind of becomes a blur because when you're not filming, you're still working hard uh, in post and then boom, you're off to, I don't know, like we're going to the Nova Scotia when I get back from Fort St. John. Okay, so you're you're busy all over the place, going all yeah, over the world, basically. And we're heading to Sweden <laughs> in September for to film at least four episodes, so that'll be a long okay, trip. Okay, okay. And because each, so each episode is either filmed in like a community in Canada or a community. There has to be a personal connection. And this, okay. in the case of Sweden, Dan has a good friend who, who's there and he's uh, lined up the kind of stuff that we would hunt in Canada, except it's in Sweden. Because most people don't know that. There, there's moose, there's beaver, the same kind of animals that are in Boreal of Canada are in the Boreal of Sweden. Oh, I didn't know that. They yeah. have moose in Sweden. Yeah. Mm. Have you guys had to put your brains together like through seven seasons coming up with ideas where there's connections? Between well, the not two Dan. Uh, <laughs> 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 my my uh, business partner, Hillary, who's also British, does his writing. The, oh, okay. So if you, know, if you watch the show closely, you'll notice that when Dan is narrating, it's sort of an episode led by him. He's taking me somewhere. Mm-hmm. If you hear me narrating, it's me taking Dan somewhere. And then the final episode, we're kind of going back and forth. There's not really a leader. Uh, it's pretty subtle, so people may not notice that. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, she she would uh, do all his writing. So he just, he may do a, a little bit of Googling just bef- on our way there. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and obviously you don't do any Googling. Like, you know... Yeah, well, I write my own episodes, and so I'm I'm already very familiar uh, with with the the topics we want to hit on. I mean, you've been all over, and you've said that it kind of blurs together. But is there one community that stands out the most? Like, you know what? Here's the truth: everywhere we go, I like something about that place. I've never had a bad experience. Like somebody might want to name somewhere more exotic, like when we were filming in Spain. It's oh, you've got to see the islands of Spain. No, the islands of Spain are no more important than Nunavut. I had a great experience in Nunavut, being out with real Inuit hunters on the frozen ice Mm -hmm. for seven, eight-hour stretches and minus thirty-five, minus forty. It's more uh, about like the people and the experience. More about the people and the experience, and uh, you see these things in documentaries growing up, and you, and now you're doing it, and it feels pretty great. I think it's amazing. Every every community, even coming back and filming in the piece, amazing because you see another side of people and other side of communities that you wouldn't normally see and people are letting you into their worlds and it's uh there's some reciprocity going on there i'm learning a lot and i'm being inspired by everywhere we go and it's so awesome for the communities too right and that's what you're saying reciprocating from hey it's going out to the viewers but then it's shining some light on what goes goes on here yeah you know there's still some production companies that come in and their story is more important, and so the community members are subjects, and then, uh, we don't buy that. 
And you, okay, so you were fluent in Cree, and you translate every episode of Moose Meat and Marmalade into Cree. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> what was the reception of the show when it was first shown to elders at Soto? I don't know. I wasn't there. Oh. <laughs> and I don't have a TV, oh. <laughs> so I don't watch the show. <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're involved in editing, not in, I'm, not, I'm not the editor, but the editor will do what's called a rough cut, and then we sit around and give our notes. Uh, you need to put loud, and then it goes through sound review. And you might have some improvements here. You need to make this splash louder. Uh, and then it goes through color grading. There's different processes that go that before you finalize it and send it off the masters to APTN for broadcast. So it uh, it goes on and on. The work. So never when just it's ends. done, you're kind of like you're when over it. When it's done, I'm over it. I don't need to watch it again. I probably mem- memorized a lot of it. And you, so do you always gather all of your ingredients on the show through hunting, gathering, and fishing? Like, when they're my episodes, yes. Okay. And when it's Dan's, if he can't, he at least sources it so it's not, uh, you know, it's not dull. We're just going into a store and buying some pork. No, we'll go to a farm that produces organic pork or raises some kind of a rare breed, and we'll go right to the place and meet the pigs and go to the, the shop where they cut up the meat and get put to work so the audience comes on that journey okay and the feedback you know it was hard to say first year we didn't get off we actually didn't get funded our second year we applied and aptn uh, turned us down and then i think due to audience response they got a lot of emails i'm pretty sure and they're asking hey where's this moose meat and marmalade show so all of a sudden we get funded our season two actually happened in year three. Oh, okay yeah, so we've been at it a little longer than the seven seasons we've been at. and then covid added a year so we've actually been at it for nine years wow so what's the future look like of the show in terms of, you know, are you guys just going to keep going? Or do you, do you have enough communities that you, you want to go to with connections? To yeah, we wouldn't run out of places, although it is getting harder. And then yeah. there's inflation, there's yeah. COVID, there's the Russian invasion. I don't even, to this, I don't know what might happen before we even go to Sweden. That might change, right? Yeah. So we've had to learn to adapt on the fly and have backup plans, which is it it makes our work much much harder. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then during COVID, we had people had canceled on us because they were afraid, you know, of getting COVID. So we had strict COVID protocols in place, and we had to cut down. We couldn't travel because of travel restrictions. So we filmed a lot of those around BC, and we had to learn to do it on the fly. Okay, we can do that. Let's get a hold of the let Let's create a new story here then. And so you have to learn to do that as quickly as possible because it's a lot of work to research an episode. I bet. And I'm guessing you guys, like, you're talking about the the COVID-19 process. I'm just curious because you hear, you know, through other podcasts and during interviews, you've kind of heard, I guess, the horror stories, you know, in the early days of the pandemic. So I'm guessing there's just a lot of testing. There's certain places you could go. You had to test every morning. Oh, yeah. We had to test every morning. We had to mask up. The only ones are that that were not masked and that was only if whoever we were with was comfortable with us not being masked where Dan and I the rest of the crew would all be masked up there'd be a sanitizer 
uh, available microphones would get disinfected after each use. So uh, yeah, we took we took extreme measures because people in this field, our field crew, they are all uh, freelancers. So when they're not on our show, they're working for other shows. They they can't afford to get sick. Yeah, and we can't afford to get accused of getting people in the community sick either so we have to really be cautious and cover ourselves do you think it impacted the show i mean it, of course it did in some ways yeah those cancellations yeah. definitely impacted us and they slowed things down so you know season six would have normally been aired already it's not going to air until fall mm-hmm. so we added an extra year there roughly a year so essentially, you guys are just going to keep filming until the wheels fall off, right? Until you feel it's not something you guys want to do anymore, or just keep going? Well, I know I don't want to be an old man trying to climb a hill chasing a moose. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want Dan pushing me around in a wheelchair. <laughs> hey, oh, oh, let's go over this next ridge. <laughs> but it would be a funny sight to see you pushing Dan in the wheelchair. <laughs> Did it take Dan some convincing to do this or was he gung-ho right from the beginning when you first talked well, to him? Well, Dan runs a, a cooking school so he already knows how to how to entertain an audience. Mm. He's very good. He's a good teacher. So it was a natural fit for him I think. I saw the clip when he uh, burned his eyebrows off. Oh, and I really wish that would that I wish that was caught on camera. I, like you just see it after. Okay, here's here's the here's the truth. He, we were with a celebrity chef in England, and Dan was. I could tell Dan was really wanting to impress him because the guy's like, he gets to cook wild game and he has a Michelin starred oh, restaurant. Yeah, yeah. So Dan wanted to impress him. We left Dan to do the fire. Him, him and I, Mike Robinson, we went to uh, work on some bread in his house. And when we came back, Dan's eyebrows were already gone. <laughs> And the cameras missed it. They didn't get to see the explosion. <laughs> Did he pour some gas on the fire? Is that what happened? Yeah, I, yeah, I think he got too close. Oh, no. When the fire went up yeah, instantly. And uh, he was trying to be straight-faced, but Mike Robinson couldn't keep from laughing. So we both, we both burst out laughing. Your eyebrows are gone, Dan. I don't know if they're fully grown back, to be honest. <laughs> It'll just never be the same again. Uh, so I want to go kind of in between I guess the show and Victoria and kind of fill in that gap a little bit you have two sons and four daughters is that correct that's right Uh, how important was it to keep a safe space for them not only to be who they are but to encourage them to be a voice and four of my kids were already adults four of my kids were already adults when we started filming this show okay I just had the two two daughters and then uh they were only with me half time, so their mother and I were co-parenting. We didn't live together, and so she's a professor at the university, so we just kind of traded each other off because she uh, has to go to conferences too, where I would take the kids. I'd have to, you know, consult when we're setting our our schedule for the season. I need to be away these dates, blah, 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 so we sit down and manage it out. So when I'm in Victoria, I love to spend time with my girls. And it has been half time. But now that they're teenagers, they're 
staying away a little more and mm. kind of entering their own world. Yeah. So, socializing mainly with their friends and working on schoolwork. And so I see them less nowadays. Well, during my research, when I was kind of looking at the earlier days in your life, like it, it kind of seems like, or I guess not the earlier days, but the middle part of your life, like your kids are very vocal and it seems very comfortable voicing what they believe in. Was that really important to you to kind of instill I, that in them? I just don't think there would be any stopping it. Yeah. Uh, um, They're kind of a force I, on their own. Yeah. And I come from a family like that and I'm pretty sure their mom's family is the same. And so we're, we're both educators. Both parents are educators, both. And I'm a, I've always been a bit of an activist, but yep. just not the kind that jumps in front of a crowd with the play card and yells loud speeches. That's not my style. I'm more of an on-ground. I'll help, I'll help you guys behind the scenes. I'll bring food. I'll come up to the rally and sing some songs. I'll, I showed up for the Rocky Mountain Fort Camp here to try, and they were trying to stop the, uh, the you know, the big dam. And, yeah, of course, um, they're all friends of mine, and I stopped to give them a hand as well and so that's my style of activism and so the conference that you're here for healing the hoop what are you speaking about while you're here well they got me doing too many things (laughs) 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 i got a keynote i got a workshop i got a comedy night and i think some music so they got a, a me doing multiple Jack things. Jack of all trades. <laughs> Jack of all <laughs> trades. But luckily, I think for the comedy and music, there'll be others. And so I won't have to, you know, hog the stage the whole time. Okay. So we, uh, we asked this with every guest. Uh, what does reconciliation mean to you? Reconciliation to me means uh, more than putting feathers on a chainsaw. That's for sure. Reconciliation is about title. I don't think there can be any reconciliation without the true uh, kind of a atonement and a look at the real history of the country and what really happened. It shouldn't be left out of schools. It, it's, um, yeah, there was white supremacy, there was racism, there was a lot of violence, there was a lot of acts of genocide, and... Uh, Looking about, looking at that, and talking about it without necessarily blaming, and the government's having to take, yeah, you know, to admit that and take some responsibility. I think that's where reconciliation starts, yeah. and it also starts with the recognition of our title to the land, because without that, there's nothing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're busy, and I really appreciate you talking with us and i'm looking forward to hearing you speak this week and uh oh you're gonna be there are you i am yeah (laughs) and so is trey i'll be excited for that comedy show (laughs) yeah oh geez i better i better go uh (laughs) practice (laughs) (laughs) no thank you so much and uh yeah i really appreciate it thank you so much yeah take care guys
We're here with Penny Jones, a keynote speaker at the Healing the Hoops conference in Fort St. John. Uh, Penny is a psychiatric nurse with Northern Health. Uh, just right off the bat, Penny, um, what led you to your journey as a psychiatric nurse? And I guess this is a dual question on what's the current work that you're doing with Northern Health and in the, the communities? Yeah. Um, so I would like to say that I became a psychiatric nurse because I wanted to help people, but that's a lie. Um, I needed a place to live that wasn't with my mother, uh, and I was living in England, and I decided to apply for nursing, and they did some testing, and they said you could go to nursing or the army, they both have places to live, and I decided not to go to the army because I didn't like the shoes, <laughs> so I went into nursing, and they said, what kind of nursing would you like? I said, what do you mean? Like, people don't know there's different types of nursing, and they said, in those days, we became registered mental nurses, that's a nice word. And they, I said, I, I don't know what you're saying to me. And they said, there's different types of nursing. And I said, well, I, I have no idea. And they said, well, you seem like you can handle yourself. Why don't you go into mental health? I'm like, okay. I was 17 at the time when I was interviewed. I went in at 18. So this is all I know. I started in a 1,200 uh, patient psychiatric hospital in England. Different days, full uniform, beautiful cape, the hat, the whole nine yards. I started there, but we were horrible people. We were warehousing people. We didn't see human beings. We overused medications, we used punishments, and it was the culture, and I became one of those people. Um, and then when I came back to Canada in 1992, I started working the community, and I got a job going around to people's houses and helping. And I'm in jeans like a good Canadian is. You know, I was full, I was a full-dress uniform as a nurse, and I'm in jeans. I thought, well, that's kind of cool. So I go around to someone's house, and I knock on the door, and I said, hey, you know, I'm Penny from Canadian Mental Health Association. And they're like, how are you doing? And I looked at them and I'm like, you're taking your meds? Because that's all we said about medication, taking your meds. And they're like, I thought you were taking me shopping. And I'm like, taking your meds? Because I didn't know what else to say. And they kind of told me where to go and slammed the door in my face. And I went back to the office and I'm like, wow, belligerent, refusing treatment. What's wrong with these people? They're like, no, they're usually pretty nice. I'm like, no, no, they're not. Well, maybe it's about you. I said, what? I'm the nurse. And I go to the next house and the same thing happened. Three times this happened. Now, my mum taught me in a different way, but you know when you go home from school and you had a bad day and you say to your parents, oh, the bus driver was a jerk and, you know, my teacher was a jerk and my friend was a jerk and your mama says, it's okay, pumpkin, here's some cookies and milk, feel better. My mum would say, the only common denominator is you, Penny, therefore you must be the biggest jerk. So when everybody hated me when I was providing this crappy service, I could hear my mum in my head saying, who's the biggest jerk? I thought, oh God, it's me, it's me. So I started changing. I started studying. I started trying to, you know, better myself to help the service I was providing to people. Um, I found what's called psychosocial rehabilitation, which uh, I'm trained in and certified in. But it's not hard. It is not hard. People said, oh, you have this, you know, certification. I'm like, it's not hard. Be nice to the people you're making your living off. See a human being. I thought, well, that's not hard. But it became a cultural shift for me. So... That's what I started doing, and I did a massive cultural shift, and I'm forever grateful to Canadian Mental Health Association and Linda Dorn for being my mentor. And it's moved through over over the decades now. I've been psych nursing for 37 years. Um, so my my pleasure, my, my hope, my blessing is that I'm leaving the career on a good note. Uh, now I see someone's son, someone's daughter, someone's child, someone's loved one. I work with a very vulnerable population in different jobs that I have, and it's an honor. It's an honor. And sometimes I'm the person in someone's worst day. 
uh, and we need to be present and be there. And everybody deserves respect, and everybody deserves opportunity, and everybody deserves the ability or the skills to be able to rehabilitation, recovery, whatever their journey looks like. And I'm just along for the ride. So do you go into a lot of indigenous communities with your your work? My current job, um, I'm with the First Nations Mobile Support Team Mm -hmm. with Northern Health Mm -hmm. and funded by First Nations Health Authority. Thank you. Um, So I go up to Kodacha and Seike and I live there Monday to Friday. Um, I'm running a small team, uh, very small. Currently, there's myself and one therapist. Uh, We have trouble securing staff, as every remote and rural place does. It's very difficult. Um, So I travel up there. I live up there for one week. And then the second week, I serve McLeod Lake and Clayley Tanay, providing any service that I can. Uh, So be that counseling, support, food security, housing security, whatever I can do to help support. And people will say... What has food got to do with mental health? A lot. You know, if you can't feed yourself or feed your family. Uh, So we do a lot of different works. We do a lot of community works uh, in McLeod Lake. Um, I help with the community house, with Grandma's house. And I have the pleasure of cooking for the community. Which, again, is that part of my job? Yes, it is. Right? If I can engage with people on a real level, and I do more work sitting around the campfire than I would in an office. So we call it carport counseling during COVID because we couldn't go into homes to protect people. So through the window, outside, wherever we could. So lots of campfires. In your presentation, one of them, uh, you said that uh, when you were first asked in the interview what you were going to do in your first 90 days, Mm -hmm. you said nothing. (laughs) So do you want to just say or just tell us like how you elaborated on that a little bit? Yeah. So, yeah, when I said, uh, you know, what do you, if you're a successful candidate, what, <laughs> what would you do in the first 90 days? And I said, nothing. And the speakerphone says to me, who was a beautiful man, actually, but says to me, you know, could you elaborate on that? And I said, oh, is that code for that's a shitty answer? Which, that was my first professional interview since 1988, so they cut me some slack, I think. Um, and then my answer was, is that my belief system and the belief system of the team that I work with People go into the communities where they're outsiders and they think they know better and they think they're going to save the world and that you need me. Nobody needs you. So our job is to engage with communities, engage with people, engage with the nation. And when we're asked to do our work, when somebody comes to us and says, can I share my story? Could you help me? Then we do it. In the meantime, yeah, pat the baby, stroke the dog, stoke the fire, whatever you can do to engage, but in a genuine way. You know, I'm not going to go make your wood because I think it's going to get me good points to get in your good books. I'm going to do it because it's right. You know, we serve the elders. And we we came into these jobs, different levels of knowing culture. Uh, for me, you know, I went to school in Fort St. James. I was with an Indigenous family uh, dating the son for a number of years. I had no concept of what had happened. I wasn't taught in school. And living in a bubble. Like the, the Neither gram- were we. <laughs> I mean. yeah, the grandma used to come down from Middle River and make the signs of the devil at me and spit on me. And I never thought to ask why. I just say, oh, grandma spit on me again, right? But I never thought to ask why because I'm not indigenous. And then when I started learning, I was shocked because, you know, I'm in my 50s. So when we went to school, it was the big dirty secret. We were taught nothing. I could tell you more about European concentration yep. camps than I could about the country I'm living in. And then I was disgusted with myself that I didn't know. Why didn't you know? And I take responsibility for that. You know, so then, again, starting to learn. And the elders had been beautiful 
you know, I've learned the theory and the schooling, but listening to the stories of the elders and, and listening to the stories of people who were for us at Lejac or the trauma that's happened. And, and I believe if people can tell their story, I can listen to their story. Right. So a lot of staff have trouble listening to the high levels of trauma. And I've, I've worked on the streets since 1992. I have never heard this level of trauma until I started to work in indigenous communities. So I have skills to protect myself, but I need to be present and I need to be supportive and I need to listen and hold the secrets. And we use things, you know, sometimes grandfather rock or the mountains or something that helps somebody maybe not talk to me, but talk to the land where that I could also listen if they give me the honor of listening to their story. How did the shift happen, especially with mentally, you know, going into these communities, kind of going in looking for that trust? And it almost seems like listening is the kind of the first step of healing. And I guess I just wonder... Would that be a good suggestion? Like, because people have asked me before um, just doing this podcast of what can we do to help? Just like the average listener, what can we do to help? Would listening be one of those things? Having an open mind. It seems like that's a difficult thing. Like on paper, it sounds like it would be easy. Yes. But, you know, even from your story, like you said, there were times where I guess you you would call it there was, you know, ignorance you didn't know right so how would someone from your experience if you're talking with someone how would you express to them to help them on their journey to open their mind i think the number one thing i mean listening is important but the number one thing is to be genuine that's Mm -hmm. the number one thing is to be genuine and be present um especially as a healthcare provider uh Unfortunately, we have a lot of healthcare providers with what's called compassion fatigue. They have shut down their emotions in order to survive. People can smell that a mile away. People know if you're genuine. Mm. And when you're present and genuine and people come to trust you, it's it's natural, right? So when I'm sitting in an office going, hello, I'm Penny, I'll be your nurse today. That sucks. That doesn't work. When I'm sitting doing the fire with you or you're teaching me how to make bannock, which I also suck at, or you're teaching me we're going hiking. I said, do I look like I go hiking? I'm a great big woman. You know, you're taking me up the mountain. I'm going to die. But people have been so supportive. And I think it's because I, I believe that I am genuine, right? And I'm, you know, compassion uh, from my mom. We were taught everybody is, is a person, right? So when when I see a human, it's a human I'm talking to. It's not a patient. It's not a client. And I, I speak to the people I serve. And that's the term I use. Because I want to do a quality service. So being present and then listening and then offering some curiosity, if I may. Like I ask permission to say, could, could I ask some questions or could you teach me? Or, And when you're willing, like, you know, walking into a room, the first thing I do is serve the elders, you know. And sometimes culture is, is broken where I'm going. So some, in, in some communities, when I'm cooking, and I'm not a great cook. My mom's a great cook. I'm not a great cook. Uh, but when I'm cooking, the first thing we do is go around and serve the elders. And usually I have a gaggle of children behind me going, but Penny, we're hungry. And I'm like, but we're going to serve the elders first. How come I want to eat first? Because it's right. Let's go. Right? <laughs> so they all follow behind me, like cranky, right? But when you do those basic survival skills with people that is part of life, people will start to engage with you if you're genuine. 
So genuine, compassionate, listening, willing, and then just being present. So part of the difficulty is with remote and rural communities especially is people struggle with staff. So people will say to me, why the hell would I talk to you? You're going to be gone in two weeks. And I've watched it. I have watched it, right? Um, And so I can't say to people, I can't promise I will be here forever. But I'm here today. And that's the best I can offer. right? And so I am leaving my job, unfortunately, because of my family situation, uh, which is difficult, which is very difficult. But when I explain to people it's because my partner's not well, the compassion that I've had returned to me has been a beautiful thing. And the Indigenous healing that's been taught to me and offered to me is, has changed my work and changed my life. So you'll uh, carry on for the rest of your life, for sure, right? Oh, yeah. I, it's in my heart. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, being connected to the land and understanding that people have survived such terrible, terrible things. And I understand that as a non-Indigenous person, I am the face of colonization. So when I was starting this job, I, I recognized that immediately. People have been beautiful with me. I get the odd thing, you know. Usually it's the young ones when I make it put a seatbelt on. <laughs> You're so white. Yes, I am. Put your seatbelt on. Right? Um, that's that's about it. Right? Or when I made the tea wrong and the elder said to me, oh, the white one made my tea too white. I'm like, oh, okay, you know, right. You know, right? Uh, but I don't take it personal, you know, and usually it's said with jest. So I do, I do feel very honored to go into these communities um, and honored that I'm allowed to come in. Because the other thing that you'll find is if you're horrible, you simply won't be welcome back. So every time allowed to, that I'm allowed to go, it's a blessing. There are healthcare problems across the world, specifically here in Canada, but you hear all these stories about indigenous communities and, you know, some of which are living in, in squalor in some cases. How, what's the role that a healthcare worker plays? Is it an important role? I would, I would think the answer is yes, but in your opinion, you know, how important is that role for healthcare workers in these communities? It, it's massive. I mean, it, it depends on the community, but some of the communities have no access to hospital. I have to wait for medicine to be flown in. I have to wait for services. And there's not always a full understanding by provinces or the health authorities of understanding. Uh, sometimes one of the difficulties is, is people making decisions have never actually been there. You know, And then we have a lot of... Like I work for Northern Health, and Northern Health has been beautiful to me. But I work under a restriction of a health authority's policy and procedures, which doesn't always work working rural and remote. Um, I had to buy safety equipment. I've never been in a skidoo for 40 years, but I had to go in a skidoo. Usually, if there is a gun present, we wouldn't have been allowed to be at all there. But, you know, a gun is a survival tool. So I'm torn between, oh, my God, there's a gun, and oh, thank God there's a gun, you know, because there's a friggin' bear right there, yeah. right, you know? Um, so trying to blend and change some of the policies to adapt to the work uh, has been a struggle, but... I've watched uh, First Nations Health Authority provide nursing care in rural and remote where there is no access to a hospital. They are amazing. Uh, and again, the, sometimes when the nurse comes in who's not so amazing, they're simply not welcome back. You know, so the community does police that. But it's very hard when tragic things happen and you can't even get basic, basic health care. And as I said, I've worked on the streets for a long time. Maybe that doesn't sound right that I was working <laughs> on the street. Um, maybe I did. <laughs> right? But it, for a long time, and I thought I knew poverty. 
And it wasn't until I went to rural and remote that I realized I didn't even know poverty. So, I mean, when, when the store costs three times for anything that you purchase, if you're buying it in Prince George, it's at least three, four times the cost because of transportation. How do people feed their families, right? When there's 12 people living in a two-bedroomed house, and we talk about, you need some alone time and some downtime and take some time to take care of yourself. Where are you going to find that? Not in that house. Because, you know, when it, there's no windows. Basic things that a lot of people take for granted that people just cannot access. I think too as well culturally just to mention is that if I have you have which is very difficult when I'm watching you know the lack of food. I'm I'm muting you. You can you can go and I have a question while you're moving it moving the mic over. So uh Penny, mm-hmm. you said that you were influenced by your lovely mother Judy who happens to be here with us. Um, first of all, before we get her on the mic, I want you to talk about her influence she had on you. The good stuff? No. Uh, <laughs> good stuff or otherwise. <laughs> You're the one who's going to have to deal with it later. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think that, um, you know, throughout my life, my, my mother raised me. Uh, my father will say I'm just like her, which he doesn't say as a compliment, but I am just like her. The same. The same. The same. Yeah. But but mum raised me, um, yeah. and my mum is an incredible strong woman, a compassionate woman, and I'm saying nice things to her and she'll be shocked. Um, but we have an incredible relationship now as me as an adult. Uh, my mum was in a terrible accident, uh, which put a pause on life for a while. I had been accepted to nursing school for January 5th, 1985. Uh, my mom was in her accident December 17th, 1984. And from intensive care unit, she screamed at me that I would still be going to nursing. Still powerful, even in ICU. Uh, but always been there for me. Um, is my only place where I feel 100% secure and safe other than my partner. Uh, and in my journey, that's been so important. Right? And we've all made mistakes. Mum and I have both made mistakes. Uh, but we've come to a place of big, big mistakes. <laughs> We're kind of messed up, man. Um, <laughs> but we've come to a great place. Now, one of the things I want to mention, though, is that my mom travels with me, and she calls me her immoral support, uh, but travels with me uh, because I, you know, it, it's very hard to be on stage and be focused on attention. And because we laugh so much, it's good for me. So we travel together. And mom's come to many conferences and nobody has really paid any attention to my mom until we came indigenous. And Busybody and Vents invited me to a conference and I asked for a wheelchair accessible room. And I was, you're not in a wheelchair. I said, well, I'm quite aware I'm not, but my mother is. Uh, and I, my mom comes with me. And since that day, going forward, my mom has been included. The invite is for me and my mom to come. The day we arrived, there was elder's blanket from my mom, a badge from my mom that said Penny's mom, and now it says her name because yes, she's a the woman. the first time. That's, oh, that's <laughs> awesome. Penny's mom. I love that. <laughs> it was always Penny's mom. And I would write the names Judy. Judy. <laughs> uh, Judy, I, I want to talk about what you were saying when you came in before you started recording is a very beautiful thing and it kind of goes into your work and, and your history um 
traveling to, to schools and talking in, in indigenous communities. Um, you had an experience yesterday with Blueberry First Nation, uh, Blueberry River First Nation Chief Judy Desjardins. Yes. Can you kind of go into that? It, it, it was a magic experience for me because I uh, started in the north, uh, compliments of Rick Craig, law court education, and the justice system, you know, is all countries get the education, the health and the justice system wrong and uh, and we have done well in that area as far as indigenous people were concerned in the past. So this uh, program allowed me to go into every reserve but two in the north to teach the system, principally to get more indigenous people in working and um, and to understand the system, which most Canadians don't, and uh, and for bringing work experience, to do mock trials, and just to know their rights. And I went out to Blueberry, and had a, with an amazing Indigenous policeman called Wade MacDonald, who worked here, and uh, it was just great. But we were late. I hate being late. So the road had washed out. And so we're looking through the window of the classroom to say we're here, just as a little boy tried to stab another little boy with a pen. He's doing this. Wade MacDonald had huge hands and went straight in and took the little boy's hand. And the look of terror of a policeman uh, standing right there, I thought, that's got to be rehabilitative. That's very good. And uh, that... The teacher said, he's excused from this presentation. I said, well, I hate to be rude, but he's perhaps the very one that might need it. Yeah. No. And uh, so I met uh, Chief uh, Judy, if that's uh, what I'm allowed to call her, and she remembers me and remembers doing a mock trial. In the mock trial, he would dress for Supreme Court in gowns and tabs and... Uh, and came into the courthouse to do work experience. So that was a lovely, and would like me to go back and do it again. So that was a lovely experience for me. That's so to, awesome. That's yeah, so awesome. Yes. When, when was the time frame? When did you, because obviously Judy was it, younger. From ni- 1990 to, uh, to 99, the beginning of 99, and I had to retire because of health reasons. And, um, but I learned a lot. And I learned when I would never have, and you will take anything out that offends people, I know, I'm hoping, I would never have... You haven't said anything yet. (laughs) ...have a poor filter. And uh, I'd never have come to Canada if I was always an activist. I was born with this uh, sense of justice that, that things have to be fair. And I would never have gone to South Africa because of the apartheid. And I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know there were reserves. I mean, we didn't have. uh, I never thought. We came to Canada very quickly after making the decision to leave Britain. And if I'd known there were reserves, I wouldn't have come. I equated them with the apartheid. And I've always been paranoid about racism. And I remember talking to... uh, an esteemed counsellor and said, you won't find that in this country. And then I took this job, and if you said that, then you've never driven on the roads 
to get out to reserves. And you have never seen that some, often depending on leadership or if they have methods of making a living, um, some are like third world countries mm -hmm. and some are just thriving. And, you know, so I've seen every aspect. Uh, I also worked in the justice system for 35 years and listened to people's stories, amazing stories, horrific stories. And so it did teach me not to be judgmental in any way due to the fact you don't know where people have been. When you see homeless people, often the streets are safer than the home and things. So I have been amazingly lucky to meet the people I've had. I always believe people are sent to you. And so on this journey through different reserves, I have learned much more than I've taught, you know, and it's been a great experience. And I have been so impressed, not just with the teachers, um, but with the students. They ask such pertinent questions, and you think, my pension's going to be continued to be paid if these children get into a good workforce. It's a long answer to a sh short question. Uh, no, it, it, it's very beautiful because uh, from the outside and, and just meeting you guys today and hearing the story, very similar journey. Um, and now you guys are together and you go into these conferences. Judy, how awesome is it for you to be doing this? I mean, it could uh, not be awesome if you want to start roasting well, your daughter uh, over uh, here. But uh, <laughs> hey. this is my moment for retaliation. I'll mute her. Go. Uh, tell the world Payback. that she was not uh, potty trained till she was eighteen and other things. Um, you know, first of all, it's lovely to be in awe of one of your children. I mean. Uh, Yesterday at the, uh, and I do find, I'm not allowed at, at all of, of the workshops, I shouldn't be at some, when people are bearing their soul, it's bad enough to bear it to one person, you don't need a list, but yesterday um, I thought the presentation was excellent, but uh, I, I have four children, and... Uh, I'm the favourite. <laughs> and I... I don't actually have four children as far as Penny's concerned because there's only one. And she'll write, you know, your only child on cards. <laughs> well, because you're Penny's mom, it says and it right on the card, that's right? That's right. <laughs> but it's the very first time. I used to have a personality of my own, my own career, and but no. And what I do discover is that if you give the similar circumstances... Uh, into different countries you get the same reaction because I was the JP and court administrator for Fort St. James and at the time it had the highest crime per capita in Canada and they said oh, you'll, you'll last a couple of months up there you won't last very long I'm from the north of England and they closed down all the mines and if you take away uh, particularly men's method of making a living and uh, if drink is available, I go to Fort St. James and I see the same symptoms in the community as I'd left at home. Uh, because uh, if your self-esteem gets eroded, 
then you can't perform. Drink brings out the worst. And uh, the local doctor wanted to prescribe pot for drinkers because it mellows them down. Um, and I said, I don't think that's possible at present. <laughs> you know, that would be totally inappropriate. Um, but when going to Fort St. James, um, I have three daughters and a son. I had nothing in common with the boy, and I bought a boat and took up fishing and river running in it. So that was a great experience for me, you know. But I am Canadian, despite my Mickey Mouse accent. <laughs> Every inch a Canadian. I love this country, but I do wish many things were different. You know. I think, uh, yeah, no, I agree. I think all of us can agree. I wish a lot of things were different, but luckily, you know, with events like this, yes. there's growth. Yes. And uh, the the last question I have for you guys, um, you can kind of go, we'll go with Penny and then Judy if you'd like to answer as well. We ask all our guests, what does reconciliation mean to you? It's an overwhelming question um, to what it means to me and to the people I serve. And it's, you know, there's a lot, I mean, obviously it's a very political question and there's huge politics. The politics are important, but for me, I'm on individual journeys with people. And a lot of times it's what, I'm not trying to just reflect this back. It's what reconciliation means to them. But one of the things is equality and equality to healthcare, equality to food security, equality to water. That would be <laughs> nice. Right? You've got to watch that video. It's just water. <laughs> How hard is that? We've got it everywhere. But, but people don't even realize and unless they've been there. And I think that if we can get people to realize uh, and actually be compassionate towards it, uh, we could help to do some true reconciliation because the, the disquality that happens in this country is amazing to me. Uh, but uh, also what happens is the blinders that are on. You know, people do not believe unless they go and see it or they... Then they somehow, you know, it's not just an advertisement, a media run, but real life, see how some people are living. It's disgusting that, that, that that's allowed, you know, and, and people judge it hardcore and somehow it's the people's fault. It's not the people's fault. This is what's happened because when I say what we did as a non-Indigenous person, but how Canada treated its people, the people who were here already, <laughs> and then... I, I don't agree with terms like, you know, anti-assimilation. How can you assimilate into your own country? We're the assimilators, right? We, we, we're the foreigners. The settlers. The settlers, we're, yeah. yeah. You know, so I, I, I struggle with reconciliation is beautiful on paper, but I see a lot of tokenism. I see a lot of little things being thrown, you know. It's just a buzzword in some people's it's, opinions. It's a yeah. buzzword, you know, and I... I, you know, I had blinders on. I, I worked with a lady going back to the early 90s who was indigenous. And we were trying to find housing. And she said, Penny, you make the phone calls for an apartment. I said, no, my job is to help support you learn skills. You see, <laughs> so you make the phone calls. And she went, no, you make the phone calls. I said, no, that's not what it's about. She went, as soon as they hear my accent, they won't rent to me. I said, you are. I, I wasn't understanding. She said, no, as soon as they hear that... that it was native at the time. They're not going to rent me. I said, don't be silly. Like I, That was beyond my concept that that would happen. So we did a little test. Do you know? So she phoned. No, we don't have anything to rent. I phoned. Oh, yeah, we got rent. And that happened several times. I'm like, like that was my first kick in the can. I was like, are you kidding me? Right? 
But now, you know, I, I help sometimes bring people to, you know, regional resources to get support. And I, I stay back the same as I do with my mom, because mom is in a wheelchair. I kind of look around vacantly because people will speak to me, not my mom, you know, because I'm the one with legs that makes me talk better. I don't understand. Um, but I watch how people are treated, the people, and I and I just walk up and say, I do hope this isn't because my friend is indigenous that you're serving them that way. But why do I have to do that? You and shouldn't, yeah. Base layer, can't we respect everybody? And people will say words like, I don't see color. You know, that's not right either. We need to see indigenous people for the strong, powerful, courageous people that they are. The fact that they are still here is is a sign of strength and a sign of power, and we should be respecting that. And we can learn so much if we just shut up for a minute and open our bloody eyes and ears and be present in the moment. To me, that's reconciliation, that that respect at the ground level. Right? We're not equals. You know, this is not our country, and I'm not a huge political person, but I am about this. We are the people that came in, and, and people say, well, I didn't do it personally. Well, yeah, you're not 400 years old, whatever it is. You know what I mean? No, you didn't do it personally, but we need to acknowledge that our people, our ancestors, were the people that did this. And and it's not like I'm on a crusade to save the world, but if I can help in some way, was my plan. If I can help Indigenous in some way, but that's not what's happened. Indigenous has helped me. So it's been a, a beautiful journey, but I, I think there needs to be some butt-kicking uh, to really get this down onto where people live, the food they eat, like the basics, right? The schooling systems, the, you know, and when people will say, the other question that people say that I just, is beyond me. Well, I don't understand why they want to live out there. If they all came to town, it would be just fine. And I'm like, uh, excuse me? And sometimes I have to walk away because I have nothing polite to say to those questions. So if I'm working, I have to be pleasant. But when I'm not working, I just have some words that are not appropriate. Uh, but people are still thinking like that, you know. These are the people lands. Like, let's respect just at the bottom ground. Hmm? Judy? I think some people will never reconcile. When you've been beaten constantly, it's hard to come to terms with that was all right, and I forgive you. And And some people have difficult with their own forgiveness to try and forgive themselves for different things that they have have done. I would love that there would be reconciliation. I don't think I'll see it in my lifetime. And uh, and that but I would like to emphasize that when in Britain there were also great atrocities committed and when they raised uh, her um uh, the hospital she trained into the ground they found bodies of babies, a lot of bodies of babies and things. But I do want to emphasize that you don't have to be indigenous to see the injustice of finding the skeletons of children. And that you, if you have any empathy at all, you bleed as well, you weep as well over the sheer injustice of it all. And I, speaking personally, this is a dreadful thing. I would have trouble reconciling um, because there were wrongdoings. And I don't think enough, there's a lot of promises. We would like more doing than promises. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so I have mixed emotions 
about reconciling because that's a personal choice of whether you want to or not. And if you've seen particularly your family members hurt and if your mother or father have been brutalized by an unjust system, that's going to come down on you. That's all you've ever heard. And so it's very hard not to become a victim. It's not that it's a career choice. It's just very hard not to be a victim when that's all you've heard in your home. So I wish everyone the best in reconciliation. I think it'll be a much slower process than they anticipate. Well, thank you so much, Penny, for coming by. And it was such a lovely surprise to have you, Judy. <laughs> thank you so much. Came too. <laughs> Penny's mom is here. Yeah. Yeah. The name is Judy. Judy is here. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you thank so much. You. It's very kind. We are here at Healing the Hoop in Fort St. John with Jocelyn Eisert, who is the CEO and owner of Busybody Enterprises. You know, the day is winding down, the event's winding down. What are your thoughts after three days? You know, when you plan an event, you know, 10, 18 months out, you never really know what you're going to get when you get to day one of the event where um, all of the plans are in place, things that we forgot to plan are just not going to happen. And um, then you hope that the right people come and show up with open hearts and open minds to get the tools that they need to make a change in their life. So for me, um, every single person that I had an opportunity to connect with and ask how they were feeling and their thoughts on the gathering, everybody got a nugget. Everybody got a piece of something or a tool that they needed in order to help themselves do better. Uh, it might not be today, it might be next month or next year, but um, I think that people have been impacted by the stories and the knowledge that has been shared. And for me, that's exactly what this is all about. I have a tool that I can plan things and create the platform for people to gather, but I can't make their hearts open, their minds open. That's their own tools. But they're coming here and they're allowing themselves to do that. And you know, that's healing the hoop. And I just wanted to say too, and, and you definitely seem like someone who wants to help others, but you don't want recognition. So I'm going to give you recognition right now. And I'm going to say with before the peace and kind of our partnership that we have with busybody. Thank you. Because this is well with click. click, Is it click and busybody or just click? There's a bit of a collaborative there. for Yeah. uh, All together. And I, I just like to say like, thank you so much for these opportunities that we might not have had if we didn't get to see her and we've we've got to if we didn't like have this partnership and and the relationships we've made over the past couple days and people we got to talk to is just incredible and like just for us you know part of the media like this is something that happens all the time i can't even imagine for all these residents from communities as far as 10 hours away you know coming to be a part of these workshops and either continue their their healing process or begin their healing process it's just it's a beautiful thing it truly is and uh, i just wanted to say thank you well thank you i'm honored and i'm humbled and you know we we all have toolboxes and mine happens to have some logistical abilities and you know we just bring it and show up and i'm glad that we did because it was obviously needed yeah there's a sense of community that i feel with you and that i get from click um So I just want to say thank you as well, because I feel very grateful to experience the things that I have while I've been here. 
and I just did a blanket ceremony today. Is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And man, that was very powerful. And you were kind of the leading force in making that happen. So I just thank you. Well, you're welcome. But it wasn't me. It was the universe. Mm -hmm. Things don't happen by accident. They really don't. And um, it was meant for you to have a guide to show you your way. And thank you for allowing us to be part of your journey. Now I'm crying. (laughs) (laughs) On another note, David fixed my back. (laughs) And my numb leg. No, it's like I can't can't describe. Like before, I was telling Jenna this, like I, I definitely love the culture and I'm I'm so glad to now be a part mm-hmm. and kind of get immersed and, and learn about it. But I was a little bit of a skeptic on some things and you know, there's some things where it's like with my back, I couldn't explain it. I've been going through pain for since I was in high school, over 10 years. And he did what he did and it didn't hurt. <laughs> and I usually can't stand straight without being in pain. And it's just, Oh, Oh, I can't say thank you enough to you, Jocelyn. <laughs> you know, David Daniels is an incredible man. I mm. met him 10 years ago, and honestly, he was an MC at an event I was at in his community, and there was a magnet between him and I, and I can't explain it either, something like you had mentioned. And um, we were doing a healing conference a couple of months in the future of this event we were at, and I asked him to come to our community and help, and he said he would. And then he told me his rates are $200 a day, and I'm like... But you can't pay more because then that's not, I'm not following my mandate to my client with trying to negotiate in the best way possible. So I paid him more, 400 a day. And um, so now I don't even ask him what he charges because it's never enough. So I pay him what he's valued at. But he comes from a traditional medicine family and it's in his blood. And the day that I met him, he was emceeing and he had a bottle of water and a bunch of rat root in his hand. And he was, he asked who had a headache and he'd get up and give a little piece of rat root and chew it up and give it to them a glass of water and shake a little thing over the head. And next person he goes and does the same thing and he goes back on stage and 10 minutes later, he's like, okay, all of you who just ate the rat root, stand up. Whoever still has a headache, sit down. They all kept standing. So he gave my people, healed migraines in an instant. I knew he was the real deal. Yeah, he's he come back is. here four or five different times. Um, I'm trying to get him to adopt me, but he's got his own real daughter, so I can't get in there. <laughs> but um, no, he's he's a, he's an amazing man. He really cares. He's here for the right reason. He's on a good journey, and um, I'm humbled and honored to be a part of his tribe and his his traditions. So he said we would only have you for here for a couple minutes. So I'll ask you um, one last question sure. I have for myself, and then Jenna, if you have anything else. Um, and I've already asked you this question on the new side of things for Energetic City, but what's the future holds for Healing the Hoop now going forward? Well, the hoop is in motion, and it's going to continue to flow. Um, I don't know when it will happen again or where it will happen, but it's going to happen. Um, I think that's my role in this community, to um, bring to life gathering moments where we can get different things to take us along that different path that sometimes you need to pivot and go in a bit of a different direction or you you meet a fork in the highway and um so when we meet that fork we're going to keep going forward uh going to be annually for sure um might take it across the province so many communities need this um and maybe a reverse healing the hoop so 
four or five practitioners going to community for a day or two so we can heal communities mm-hmm. instead of the five or 10 or 20 that get chosen to come to the to the uh, collaborative gatherings. So future, definitely. The future is bright. Um, a year ago, we had 100 closed doors to us. Um, now we have 101 open doors. So we're going to continue to walk forward. Well, that it kind of my question kind of follows up that is just kind of what is the future of Click, and can you tell us just a little bit about what it is? Because I think there's a lot of people who don't know what it is and maybe could benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Sure. So a year ago, Christy Jordan Fenton and myself decided that uh, we needed to come out of our basements and hang a shingle. So we did so. And both of our companies are profitable companies. They were not set up to be nonprofit societies. And we thought, although we want to feed our families and make some money to keep the lights on in the building, because that's also important, that we need to give something back to the community. We just can't keep continue to take out from the community, but we need to give back. Just like the tobacco offerings in Indigenous cultures, when you take medicine out of the ground, you replace it with tobacco so you don't leave a void in the system. So um, that's exactly that's exactly what we want to do. We want to fill gaps. We want to help where needed. And, um, and I think we did it. I think you did. <laughs> Congratulations. So, so when we decided that our profitable businesses needed something different, we came up with this cultural learning and innovation circle. And, and it came to Christy in the middle of the night. That's what it's got to be. And we're really here to click communities together. So not just cultural communities or indigenous, but anybody. We want them to feel like they belong and that they have life and they are honored on this, on this land. And um, whatever we can do to make them feel like they're part of the family, then that's what click is all about. And people come in and they say, do you do this? And we say, no, but we know somebody who can. So we build the bridge and, and, and that's really what we're doing. And anyone can come see you, right? We are open to all cultures. And that's why we also call it a cultural learning and innovation circle, not to deny or invite any specific culture. We are here with our open doors. If you need something or you don't know where to go, come to the village. Somebody at Click or Professional Muse or Busybody or we've got a bookkeeping company in there as well. Um, come on down, give us, give us what you need and let us see how we can help you. And if we can't help you, then we've got a great coffee machine and we always have wonderful cream. <laughs> so come on down. You know, we're, we're a community initiative. The community is welcome. And we also have Sticky's Candy in our building. So if you've got a sweet tooth, come on down and you'll uh, get some treats. Okay. Well, that will bring us to our last question. Uh, what does <clears throat> reconciliation mean to you? Mm-hmm. Wow. Reconciliation to me means to accept what's happened and find a way to forgive so we can move forward, not to ever forget. And, you know, I I go back to this toolbox thing because we all have different tools in our boxes and we carry them around throughout our lives. And when we sit back and we can open up our toolbox and we can share our knowledge and our lessons and give back in a good way, always a good way, right intention, right time, right people. That's what it's for me, filling the gaps and, and, and being what I can for the people that don't have the courage and the desire to step out of the box. We're, we have all sizes of boxes and we're willing to help. And um, I am honored to be on this journey. Well, thank you. And thank you for being a great partner for us and for being open and just an inspiration, honestly. So thank you.
I also feel like if I was going into a fight, I would bring you with me. I could be feisty. Yeah, I sure. feel I could oh, I could yeah. feel that from you. Oh yeah, like kind yeah, but feisty. That. I feel like you'd have um, our back. Yeah, you know, youngest to seven, it. youngest to seventeen kids. <laughs> I, I have feist inside of me. <laughs> Thank you so much. Hi hi. Make sure you guys subscribe to Before the Peace using your favorite podcast app or at energeticcity.ca/podcasts, and make sure you follow us on Twitter at Before the Peace underscore. If you have a guest or program idea, email before the piece at moosefm.ca. Tune in for part two of Healing the Hoops Conference next month. Thanks for listening to this energeticcity.ca podcast. Energeticcity.ca is your only local and independent news in Northeast BC. To help keep us independent and to support this podcast, go to energeticcity.ca slash join.